Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, February 23rd, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you're listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Things were a little calmer this week at the White House, though there was almost nowhere to go but calmer after last week's resignations and that wild press conference. But we're going to talk about this past week in the context of what it's setting up for next week and next month and the next year. Trump has focused on executive action so far, and now, on the eve of his first big address to Congress, he wants Congress to start moving some big, big policy items. So we'll be looking into what's next for those big legislative plans, the future of the conservative movement under this administration, and also some of the special elections, that's right, more elections, coming up in 2017, and how Democrats are really eager to jump into them the same way that they have jumped into protests and town halls around the country. A couple quick housekeeping items before we jump into that. Remember, if you have questions for us, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. We'll be answering a listener question here in just a moment. And if you enjoy Nerdcast, please subscribe and rate us and even write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. All right, here are the numbers that mattered this week. The first one, four. President Trump is addressing Congress next week, and he's going to outline four major policy areas where he wants to pass major legislation this year. The next data point, $100,000. Trump has given at least that amount of money to the American Conservative Union in the past few years as he sought closer ties with the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Now, this is the group that puts on the annual CPAC gathering in Washington, which is going on as we speak. And our last number, that's five. And that's the number of House special elections on the horizon in 2017, mostly to fill vacancies caused by Trump's cabinet appointments. And as you might guess from the thousands of Democrats piling into town halls around the country, the party is raring to jump into some of those races. So that's what we'll be talking about this week. And here's who we'll be talking. Welcome White House correspondent Eli Stokels. Hello, Scott. National political correspondent Eliana Johnson. Hey, Scott. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hey, thanks for having me. And we'll bring in a few more members of the Nerdcast crew as we move through this week's topics. But first, we have a listener question this week. Daniel from Bowling Green, Kentucky is on the line. Are, is, are you nice and safe in, in Bowling Green right now? Is everything okay? Is uh... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're recovering pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your question, Daniel? Uh, my question is regarding uh, uh, regarding the uh, progressives uh, that are challenging uh, some incoming Democrats. I've seen stories about some pro Bernie Sanders slash progressive left organizing to go against elected Democrats who are working with Donald Trump and uh, possibly primary them. And my question is, uh, who do you think is uh, most vulnerable to a progressive challenger? And could these groups uh, hurt the de- Democratic Party electorally in the same way that the Tea Party did to some Republicans in 2010 and 2012. Thanks, Daniel. Eli, what do you think? I did cover 2010 and politics, uh, and, and I remember this Tea Party wave distinctly and the litmus test politics and the way that there seemed to be this myopia, this ideological myopia on the Republican side about 
um, ideas, and, and if you're not 100% pure on this issue, you're out. And there was very little thought to bigger picture. Electability. Ele- well, but electability and majorities. Even if one person was elected, right, it was like, if this is overtaking the party's message in a state, drowning the ticket, if this is seeping into sort of how people view Republicans nationally, it wasn't going to be good. It was going to be difficult for them to win majorities. And I think the majorities that they hold in, in Congress right now, in, in, you know, have, have withstood this to some degree, but also like exist because, let's be honest, filibustering and the sort of the maps, the way they've been drawn. It remains to be seen how this plays into the midterms. But, you know, Democrats in the Senate, they need they, they, the math is very difficult. They need to win to win some seats. And they have so many vulnerable red state Democrats up that if they start trying to pick them off in primaries, they're going to have no chance of Somehow, you know, even if after two years of Trump and everybody's ready to go the other direction, it's going to be very difficult for them to get to 50 Democratic seats in the Senate if they start trying to take out incumbents. Yeah, Daniel, I think the, you know, in terms of specifics, I think the people to look at first are definitely those 2018 red state Democratic incumbents, right? They're the most high profile. They are uh, in in the the biggest positions to to kind of attract attention and maybe some opposition, uh, especially you know depending on how they're voting on Trump's Supreme Court nominee or Trump's cabinet appointments. You know, these are votes that House members don't take, right? Uh, on on the flip side, I think going back to Eli's point about 2010 and how this developed on the other side when we were in kind of the mirror image situation, I I'm always struck looking back at 2010 about just how much like lightning strikes these things are that they the incumbents who lost it really developed late and it developed fast and kind of took them by surprise and was very was very surprising uh, the in particular the example i think of is bob inglis who was a longtime conservative member of congress from south carolina uh who ended up he didn't just lose his primary he lost his primary he only got like 29% of the vote i think against Trey Gowdy who's now you know he's a, a tea party republican conservative in good standing in the house but bob inglis was also once upon a time you know he he was a mentor to jim demint uh, he he was a big figure in south carolina politics and he just you know he he just got crushed in 2010 for a few reasons related to his positions on climate change and, and a few other things but it really kind of snuck up until all of a sudden and there was just this wave that he couldn't escape. So I think with regard to Democrats in 2018, we definitely should be watching those senators, but it's going to take a little time and it might happen very quickly for the people who actually do end up losing at the end of this. Thanks for your question, Daniel. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right, let's bring up our first data point of the week. That is the number four. And that's the number of policy areas that President Donald Trump plans to drill into in his first address to Congress next week. Tax reform, border security, health care, and infrastructure spending. And uh, Nancy, you know, the Trump administration is looking at this as kind of a tone setter for the rest of 2017, which, as you may have heard, uh, if you were listening to the past few weeks of Nerdcast, got off to a bit of a rocky start for them. And Nancy, things within the White House seem like they may have calmed down a hair, which which they're going to need, right? Because they're about to dive into some really major and sometimes contentious issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the last few days have been a lot calmer. Trump is tweeting less. Um, They picked uh, their labor pick is well liked among Democrats and Republicans, um, Acosta. And then also just the uh, shepherding of the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Neil Gorsuch, is going really well on the Hill. And there are some Democrats who said that they think that his um, uh, he will inevitably get confirmed. And that includes uh, 
Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. And so those things have been going well the last few days. But I think that uh, just this week, the Trump, Trump administration put some major markers on the board in terms of policy promises. And they said that they would release a budget in mid-March. Uh, Trump said the other day that he would also put forward a health care plan in March. And then Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, said that tax reform is also coming in the next few weeks. And those are huge, heavy lifts and really heavy targets for March, particularly since the uh, Supreme Court nomination hearings are going to kick off March 20th. So I feel like we could see a very policy-heavy March, and it's just a big also ask of Capitol Hill to continue to push through all these plans uh, when there's so much else going on. Eli and Eliana, tell us a little bit more about the you know, the, the atmosphere in the White House for the last week. It's been a little less frenetic and you know, maybe which which could help them a little bit going going forward, jumping into this stuff. Well, I don't right? know if it's been that much less frenetic. I mean, I think that outwardly they have come to some realization that trying to win or to fill every you know every hour of the news cycle, they weren't winning those news cycles. I mean, you know, less is more. And so I think that you know you saw everybody kind of feeling like they were a bit overexposed. Kellyanne Conway not being on TV, as Nancy said, and, and sort of stepping back and seeing if they can just sort of settle things and um, and let the dust settle and figure things out. I mean, you have this executive order that they're going to redo on the travel ban that, um, you know, we were told was coming early this week. Then we were told it's coming late this week. Now we're told it's coming next week. There is um, a lot of – there's been a lot of hubris in this White House that has been sort of plain for all to see about their inability to sort of, you know, accept that there's a lot they don't know. Donald Trump will never tell you – oh, I don't know that I need to ask a question. He will act as if he knows everything they're going to do. And you have so much inexperience throughout the West Wing. They've, they tried to sort of run before they could walk. And I think now what you're seeing, even though outwardly Sean Spicer is still saying, well, this travel ban, we're going to prevail in the courts. We did nothing wrong. The way they are slow walking uh, the, the new one, which they've said will have the exact same effect, they are. It, it shows you that they are, you know, maybe a little slow at this because they're having to sort of look around for the user's manual and figure out how this stuff works as they go. But they're they've been chastened a little bit by all the stumbles and screw ups, and so I think um, they are trying to sort of portray and, and to to demonstrate more competence as they go forward. I think some of the personnel issues and some of the the difficulties in hiring, the fights with the different agencies, the people's toes feeling stepped on in the cabinet, um, those things haven't really changed. I think they're just trying to crack down on leaks and they're trying to, uh, when they do put a foot forward, to make sure that they don't slip. Eliana, what are you looking for coming out of the White House for the next few weeks? You know, Trump has done less than previous presidents to set a policy direction. Um, and so the Congress hasn't really gotten that coming out of the White House. Um, when when Bush and Obama came in, um, they had campaigned on tax plans, on a health care policy. Trump didn't do that as much. Um, and people have said, well, maybe Congress will do more um, to set its own direction. And I think the speech will be imp an important marker of whether the White House um, will actually set a direction or whether Congress will be able to take some initiative uh, on that. And so I think it, it's um, it's a little bit dangerous to prejudge what will happen, but this is certainly an opportunity for the White House to set policy directions. They seem to be hinting that they'll do that. Um, but up till now, people have uh, been talking about that 
uh, the White House hasn't gotten very much done in terms of policy. Um, I think this could be a turning point. The other interesting thing um, that I think happened this week was we saw Trump visit um, the Museum of African American History. And my old boss at National Review, Rich Lowry, referred to it as a kind of defensive politics where he um, reached out to, um, you, you know, it was um, it was sort of a show of reaching out to um, a part of the country, a community that didn't vote for him. And it was the sort of defensive politics that Democrats didn't do very much of over the past eight years and that Hillary Clinton didn't do during the campaign and that no one would expect Donald Trump to do. Um, and so I think it was significant that he did it. Um, it will be interesting to see if the White House makes a point of doing things like that going forward. Um, but uh, I do More think- traditional politicking. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's something that, you know, it, it took some of his harsher edges off and he didn't do anything inappropriate there. Um, and so I think that was a, a potentially significant moment. And I also think, you know, just what Eliana brings up about uh, sort of out reaching out to different communities, I think that that will be something to watch with the upcoming speech on Tuesday, which I guess is not officially being referred to as a State of the Union, but is a major policy and political address that he's giving Tuesday night. Um, it's just going to be interesting to see if it's a unifying speech and whether he will delve into policy details, as Eliana says, and just what the tone of it has been. Because, uh, you know, the inauguration speech was very, very dark, talking about American carnage and all those things. And the same speechwriter and policy person, Stephen Miller, is also going to write this one. And so it'll be interesting to see if it continues that tact. Um, yeah, I mean, Stephen Miller trying to do optimism um, and uplift. I, I can't wait to see how this goes. The bar is low. <laughs> the bar is low for Donald Trump to go. I mean, outreach to, you know, beyond his base is something, as Eliana said, that we haven't really seen a lot. Now, a lot of people look at that that visit to the museum and his statements, uh, which he read from prepared remarks about, you know, being against anti-Semitism and needing to come together. A lot of people look at that and said it still felt pretty hollow, given that he hasn't done it before, given that a lot of the policies continue to be incredibly divisive. Um, but I think, you know, it is a start. And I think the speech, um, you know, I think Republicans on the Hill are frustrated uh, after this first month because they've, they have nothing to go back to these town halls that we've seen and say, well, look, we've done this. They have nothing to show for this. They've been hounded by reporters for a month in the Capitol being forced to respond to every crazy controversy that's coming out of the White House. A lot of them are, you know, they, the only thing they haven't really uh, had their backs to the wall against was, was Gorsuch. But everything else that has really been difficult for them. And so I think there's a lot of frustration. They're frustrated with the mixed signals coming from the White House on policy. Some of the, the, the more nuanced questions related to tax reform, related to Obamacare, and who's really going to be uh, carrying the ball on that. I think the Trump White House would like to look, sort of use this speech as a way to sort of hand the ball off to Congress and say, OK, here are the sort of broad goals we want to accomplish this year. You go ahead and get this done. But it also sets him up, and they know this, uh, that the moment something runs into trouble, the moment they have an issue with the White House uh, on Obamacare, on tax reform, on anything, Trump is going to turn around and throw Congress under the bus and say, I told you to do this. You're dysfunctional. You're the problem. And so there's going to be there, – there's this loose coalition between, you know, of governing in, in Washington right now where you have Trump Republicans, you have more typical congressional Republicans, uh, Freedom Caucus, Tea Party types. You know, are they going to greenlight some very expensive – plan, some huge government spending. These fights are going to happen. And so I think this is going to 
attempt to set a, a collaborative tone, but um, could yeah, be I, just as superficial as a visit to a museum. I, th I think that's one of the reasons this speech is going to be so fascinating. I, he's starting to tackle these big policy issues. Uh, and you know, now just today we're seeing uh, John Boehner, the former Speaker of the House, saying uh, that he says a full repeal and replace of Obamacare is, quote, not going to happen uh, today at a conference, which is kind of an extraordinary statement for someone who ran House Republican campaign messaging and policy messaging on this for a number of years and obviously ran a caucus that looks very, very much like the one that's in charge uh, of the House today. And but, it's, I mean, talk radio politics have fueled the Republican Party for a long time. Now that they're running it, I mean, they, they're already seeing, I mean, you're 100% right. And Boehner can talk about this because he's not the speaker anymore. He can talk about this because he's gone. The fact that the public, you know, support for getting rid of Obamacare has dissipated since Obama's left. Nancy? Well, also, I just feel like Republicans are starting to feel the heat from the constituents as well. And we've really seen that at the town halls this week. And it's not just over this perpetual political flashpoint of Obamacare. You know, voters are also mad about things like, you know, the administration's ties to Russia, that has been coming up. Uh, Grassley was asked about, Senator Grassley, the head of the Judiciary Committee in Iowa, was asked about school vouchers and whether or not he supports them. And so they're really hearing from that, uh, you know, across the country, even in safe districts like Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee heard about it. Um, and that's coming up. And, and they're really going to start to feel the heat on making sure that they have some legislative victories. And Trump has sort of added gas to that fire by tweeting and saying all these people are paid protesters. There are people out there going to these things, standing up and saying, I'm not a paid protester. The, him, him tweeting that is the reason why I showed up. It's, there's this defiance and it's growing because Trump, I mean, Spicer did a good job yesterday at least recognizing that there are some people who are angry. He's, you know, some of this is authentic, he said, before dismissing a lot of it as, as organized protests. But I think the more this is dismissed, the more these people are going to keep showing up. And we're going we're gonna to talk a lot more about these protests in, in a couple segments. But Eliana, you were just about to say something. But to that end, I think it will be fascinating to watch for um, in his speech to Congress. Surely there's going to be a Democrat who stands up and yells something or attempts to bait him. That person will instantly become, uh, you know, a national celebrity and be featured on the front pages of every newspaper. Um, this is the flip side of Joe Wilson, right, in 2009, exactly. who stood up and shouted, you lie at, at President Obama. Exactly. And, and Trump is, uh, you know, to put it gently, not known for his restraint in these situations. And <laughs> will he be able to restrain himself and prevent um, and prevent an, a moment like that from overshadowing whatever his uh, message is in the speech and from the his remarks turning into um, a negative shouting match. Um, we saw in his press conference uh, last week, I think, that when he doesn't have a cheering crowd, the tenor of his remarks um, tends not to, he, he tends not to be um, as energetic, enthusiastic. So I, re I think that the energy in the room and um, the extent to which he um, is able to discipline himself will be uh, a very interesting dynamic to watch. That's such a good point. I this, this could end up being the big spectacle of next week. And I think it's something everyone should be keeping an eye on as, uh, yeah, Trump makes his first uh, addressed to a joint session of Congress. Big, big news before it happens. Let's jump from uh, from next week's spectacle into this week's spectacle. And our our next data point uh, on this is one hundred thousand dollars, and that's how much money Trump has given in recent years, according to reporting from our own Ken Vogel, to the American Conservative Union, 
the group that hosts the annual conservative get-together, CPAC, which has been in the news this week for who is and isn't speaking there and, and just what it represents right now. So before we jump into that, let's welcome Chief Investigative Reporter Ken Vogel to the podcast. Hey. And Senior Politics Editor Charlie Mtessian. Hey, Scott. Thanks for being here, guys. So, Eliana, kick us off here. You've, you've talked on recent episodes about how Trump and his White House are not traditionally Republican and how the Republican Party and the conservative movement are changing before our eyes right now. It's a really interesting point in political history. So where does CPAC fit into that? And what, what is CPAC and, and why do people care about something similar that's going on there right now? Yes, Eliana, why do people care about CPAC? <laughs> Thanks, Scott and Ken. Um, so CPAC is the flagship event put on by the American Conservative Union. And the American Conservative Union, um, it, it, was, it was founded in the mid-60s and intended to be sort of the, the Vatican of conservative, conservatism, sort of the, the, um, the keeper of conservative doctrine. It did then and continues to rate politicians um, based on their votes on um, how faithful to conservative doctrine um, they are. And CPAC is their annual event. Um, it used to, in the, um, in the 70s and 80s, draw a couple hundred um, really faithful activists. And um, under the chairmanship of David Keene, um, the, the lobbyist and former president of the NRA and former chairman of the ACU, it really ballooned into an event um, that became um, maybe the largest event um, annually on the right that drew um, about 10,000 uh, young college kids and activists and celebrity speakers and turned into sort of a money-making extravaganza um, that was, drew celebrities. And it became a little less uh, reliably faithful to conservative doctrine. There was an enormous conflagration about how Trump and Breitbart News, and in particular the former Breitbart editor Milo Yiannopoulos, um, who has uh, made anti-Semitic statements, and it was revealed uh, made statements uh, that seemed to endorse uh, pedophilia. How would he fit into CPAC when it was revealed that he was invited to speak by the American Conservative Union Chairman Matt Schlapp? Um, he was disinvited over pedophilia, and a lot of the American Conservative Union board members said, well, why was pedophilia uh, the thing that got him disinvited and not his um, statements about being a fellow traveler of the alt-right, his endorsement of the alt-right. Um, and that really seemed to cast a pall over the event, which kicks off today. And we should say uh, that CPAC, you know, it, it's kind of become like less of uh, the, the like moral compass of conservatism and more of just like a spinning unmoored compass. I mean, it's just all over the place. They're happy to go wherever the energy is just to be able to attract um, to be able to attract the, the crowds. And, you know, we should say that you start off the segment by, by saying that uh, Trump had given at least $100,000. In fact, uh, sources tell me he may have given more than that. The $100,000 is traceable through his foundation. But the reason why that was significant is because some of this sort of sentiment about CPAC being unmoored and not necessarily being the bastion of conservatism that it once was uh, led to sponsors withdrawing and actually fell upon some some relatively hard financial times during the chairmanship after Keene of Al Cardenas. 
And that's when Trump swooped in, and it happened to coincide. Trump swooped in with his checkbook, and it, so it, he came in at a time when when uh, when ACU was having some tough times, and when he was looking for an opening to sort of burnish his conservative bona fides, and he wrote a, he wrote a, a few checks, and he ended up getting a, a a speaking slot at the 2011 CPAC gathering. That if you go back and look at it, was really like the launch of his presidential campaign. It came at a time when he was kind of regarded as a joke. He had flirted a little bit with the 2012 presidential campaign, didn't end up running, obviously. Uh, but he laid out some of these themes that are very, uh, have been re- relatively consistent through his uh, political rise in the presidential campaign. Uh, and, you know, some, uh, but, you know, you, you sort of get, you got to this point last year where he again was uh, he was actually scheduled to speak during the presidential campaign and he ended up backing out uh, over some concerns about uh, whether whether he would have to answer questions on stage like the other presidential candidates would. Uh, Ted Cruz, though, said he uh, he joked that, uh, that that Trump dropped out because, quote, someone told him conservatives were going to be here. So this is at a time when Trump was really trying to, like, gain, gain a foothold in the Republican Party. How far we've come in just a year where Kellyanne Conway this morning on stage at CPAC joked about next year they'll probably be calling this T-Pack for Trump Pack. That just goes to show you how how uh, how CPAC and the ACU have kind of just spun all over the place and not necessarily been like the gatekeeper or the arbiter of conservatism that you know Bill Buckley and some of the founding fathers of it envisioned it as. Charlie, I kind of love Eliana's description of it as the Vatican of uh, conservatism, <laughs> um, but I mean I feel like it's come so far from its role as the keeper of the. Uh, conservative flame. And, you know, I I really question its relevancy uh, anymore, especially in a a, a transformative era, uh, transformative era for the Republican Party, that is. I mean, no one loses a seat because their ACU uh, vote rating is too low these days. You know, so they they don't really have that kind of political muscle. And when you look at uh, that organization, the entity, it seems to exist only to have the big annual event, and uh, which seems very Washingtonized, and as Ken mentioned, you know has a, a you know a distinct money making component to it. And I and I say all this with like Matt Schlapp is a pretty impressive guy to me. I like him. Uh, I feel like uh, he wants to make it modern and relevant, but I just think that the time has passed the organization. And when you take a look at the look at the straw polls, for example, and who's won them. No, I mean it's almost a guarantor that you will not be the nominee. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it used to be relevant. Ronald Reagan yeah. was was building himself yeah. into you know a primary challenger for a sitting president at these things. Right? Yeah, I mean at yeah. one time it was it was Reagan, it was uh, Jack Kemp, but then it's like you look at the roster. It's Gary Bauer, it's Steve Forbes, it's Phil Graham, it's all these people who would never ever win. You know, it's Rand Paul a couple times. It's Ron Paul, uh, Rudy Giuliani, and George Allen right before he. He lost, so I mean, I think as a, as a, uh, you know, an indicator of where the Republican Party is going, particularly politically, I don't think it has much relevance. We, we should also point out that there is another side to CPAC, CPAC After Dark, the kind of freak <laughs> show such, carnival element. That's uh, such BS. Ken, this, this is this is a PG podcast. Uh, well, it's true. It's true. We, we, we have we have uh, very carefully curated our clean rating from I'll, iTunes. I'll just give <laughs> one example that I think could uh, could sneak past the uh, iTunes censors. Uh, 
But uh, so, for instance, in I think it was uh, 2014, maybe uh, there was a party that uh, was hosted by Steve Stockman, a Republican member of Congress, uh, that fit that from which leaked photos emerge of a bunch of young conservatives in a hot tub with champagne. So there's sort of that element of CPAC too, and I think sounds it sounds like Charlie Wilson, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Uh, and I think it is, um, uh, you know, it does have a place in the sort of conservative ecosystem bringing young activists to Washington, even if it's not as relevant and sort of uh, setting the course of the GOP or the conservative movement in the way that it may have been at one time. Well, I think Charlie's exactly right. Among really serious uh, intellectual conservatives, um, I, the event is not really considered a sort of a, a must attend anymore. Um, I think it, it's considered sort of a place to go and have a good time if you're a right-leaning college student and to have a, have a lot of fun. Um, but because um, it's more of a place to go see celebrity speakers who uh, may or may not be conservative, um, it, it's, I think, less considered uh, sort of the gatekeeper of the, the conservative movement or because and I think it's because it's not tied to sort of the serious conservative publications in the in the way that it once was well, and, and there's no there's no better indicator of that than Trump himself I mean you know Trump he, he got the speaking slots in 2011 and subsequent years but when he had emerged as a serious presidential candidate during the 2016 CPAC there were going to be mass protests there about people who were say you know who were trying to sort of take back that position as as the gatekeepers of conservatism. Well, well, he gave them the finger, skipped the event, won the nomination. Here we are today. He's president. He's coming to CPAC tomorrow to speak. And I, I meant to say before, you know, in 1974, I think it was, um, the debate at CPAC was whether conservatives should um, launch an alternative candidate to Gerald Ford. I mean, th these were serious, committed conservatives who, who didn't think, you know, Gerald Ford was a cons conservative enough candidate. And those were the things that were debated in National Review editorial meetings, um, a, a debate like that would never take place at CPAC today where um, where the chairman of the American Conservative Union was an enthusiastic Trump supporter during the campaign and, um, you know, where Trump is being welcomed with, with open arms. Can we get back to the CPAC after hours discussion? <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, because this is a pet peeve of mine. I feel like that is such a cliche, hoary cliched Washington, D.C. story to write every year where there's always an account of some reporter who allegedly goes to a party with these wild conservative kids in hot tubs and shit. I'm not saying it didn't happen at least once, but this story uh, always every comes. Year. There's a reason it's a cliche. And look, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, that some of that happens, but. I think that those accounts are vastly overstated. The idea that they come here, it's just something that uh, left-leaning Washington journalists cannot stay away from that story, and they will write it whether it's there or not. Well, I am looking right now at the invitation that I received for the Breitbart Luau on the Potomac tomorrow, <laughs> 7.30, on a boat pulling out from National Harbor uh, mandatory ID check to make sure you're 21. I think that uh, drinking may be involved. I might not be that reporter who goes on this cruise and writes the story, but yes, Charlie, I predict that someone will. Uh, Eliana, I want I want to finish on this segment <laughs> with with a, a thought from you. I, even uh, in, in the space of the last few years, CPAC has been. Um, 
it's been a testing ground, not just for potential presidential candidates, but uh, folks who are thinking about running for Senate or Congress or maybe governor around the country to come to Washington, meet some some donors, meet some activists, get a an opportunity to speak in front of a large crowd and burnish those credentials. Does it still play that role uh, even or or has has even that kind of fallen subordinate to to this newsmaking celebrity centric trend that, that you've talked about? I think you see a division. You know, Trump didn't speak there last year. He pulled out at the last minute, and he nonetheless won the Republican nomination. But in previous years, he intentionally cultivated the ACU and CPAC and went um, sort of to, um, you know, dust up his his uh, bona fides with, um, with conservatives. Um, I think a lot of people consider it a must attend and, and others don't. Chris Christie was intentionally excluded and it, you know. In 2013, as he was a leading potential Really, really didn't seem candidate. to hurt him that much. Rubio hasn't attended in previous years. Jeb Bush didn't attend. So I, I actually don't think it, it, it continues to hold that position. You know, when, when Ronald Reagan attended um, from 76 through 81, um, and, and through all, you know, I think through all the years of his presidency, he was intentionally cultivating the conservatives who were going to be part of his base. base. Uh, I don't think it's the same crowd now when you see people like, uh, you know, Rand Paul, Ron Paul winning, winning the straw polls. Um, I think uh, somebody was telling me, a source was telling me yesterday that Mitt Romney like bust people in so that he would do better in the straw polls. So I, I don't think um, it has the same, it, it's drawing the same crowd that it used to draw, you know, in the 70s and 80s. But perhaps it could, you know, see a bump in relevance if it, if it does become TPAC, ironically, because it's not, you know, Trump's brand of conservatism, if you can even call it that, is is like nothing that, uh, you know, uh, Bill Buckley would have ever imagined or even John Boehner would have ever imagined. Uh, nonetheless, we are at a moment where the, the Republican Party appears to be conforming to the uh, the perspective and the, the philosophies of its uh, standard bearer, Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, it could get a boost here. It's also interesting to point out that Trump, you know, there is this knock on CPAC as it's like a little bit of pay to play. And we and others have reported about how they have taken stances on behalf of sponsors in the past that didn't necessarily seem to be driven by conservative values. Well, Donald Trump, looking back through the uh, 990s of the Trump Foundation, which I was doing last night while watching Villanova lose to Butler. Ugh. Uh, you know, just just perusing the nine nineties, I saw uh, that that uh, ACU was was really one of the only and one of the most significant recipients of contributions from the Trump Foundation to conservative groups. He had mostly given to like you know uh, police uh, and law enforcement groups, children's hospitals. This was at a time when Trump was trying to curry favor in the conservative movement, and he obviously regarded CPAC as the way CPAC and ACU as the way to do that. Not necessarily saying that the CPAC played any kind of pivotal role in in, uh, in in allowing him to win the nomination of the presidency, but you know it, it gave him a platform. He used it to great effect. Are you really a Villanova fan? Uh, you know, Big Five, all Big Five, but I, I it happened you, to be on Fox Sports. Uh, so. I took you was more of a Drexel Dragons oh, no, Temple, guy or Temple, Temple. yeah, Temple, not no. This is what happens when you have the Philly guys on at the same time. I think that's a great place to move on. Let's switch from there and that gathering happening in the D.C. area this week to uh, to some voter gatherings that are going on around the country. And in 
specifically, our next data point is five. That's the number of special elections on tap around the country in the first half of 2017 uh, to fill House seats that have mostly been left vacant by Trump's cabinet appointees. That's right. Elections are coming up again. And uh, to talk about them, we've got a new nerd on the Nerdcast, Elena Schneider. Thank you for being here, Elena. Thanks for having me. So, Elena, take us through the map a little bit. What's happening and where in terms of, you know, people getting ready to vote again on on some federal House elections around the country. So we've got five races, uh, four of them because of cabinet appointments and one because uh, because of the AG in California. So two are deeply conservative races, one in Kansas, which was initially exciting and then became significantly less exciting when the uh, sort of Trump Trump surrogate ended up losing. And so um, the uh, state treasurer there, Ron Estes, is, looks like he's going to likely replace uh, Mike Pompeo in Kansas's fourth. Uh, the second very conservative race is in South Carolina, where Mick Mulvaney um, will be leaving. And we've got a pretty crowded primary. We've got several pretty heavy hitters, two uh, state representatives who sound like they might duke it out, Tommy Pope and Ralph Norman. And then um, our very uh, liberal um, bastion in uh, downtown Los Angeles is uh, to replace uh, Javier Becerra, who's going to move on to be the attorney general in California. Um, there are a number of Democrats who are running there to try and replace him. Um, it's another place where Democrats are feeling the urge to let off some steam and reflecting somewhat what has been going on and plaguing the party um, after Hillary's loss, in which we've got someone, uh, Arturo Carmona, who's, who is a Sanders advisor, who's very much running on his Sanders credentials. So you're saying le- L.A. Democrats don't like Trump very much? Right? <laughs> um, not only that, but they're not even sure whether or not they like establishment Democrats. So they're, they're certainly trying to, to a- animate that um, wing of the party. Um, and but we've got Jimmy Gomez, who is this, who's an assemblyman there, who uh, is pretty uh, appears very likely that he's going to be the number one finisher there and go on to to a runoff as well. So um, those are the three that are a little bit more simple, a little more straightforward, and it seems likely that we'll get two more Republican congressmen and another Democrat to replace those. So no changes in the um, makeup of the House there, but. Uh, if we move on to Montana and Georgia, those are two places where um, Democrats see some some room to potentially uh, pick up a seat. And uh, I'll start with Georgia six, where Tom Price, who uh, is going to be moving on to uh, the uh, be the Secretary of Health and Human Services, this is a place where uh, Trump barely won. So it's the suburban Atlanta area. It's sort it's of a place where Mitt Romney and John McCain killed. Right, in, exactly. In 08 and 12. But, but Trump fell off considerably from where they were. Right. So Trump only won by about a point and a half, which means that, uh, you know, the 60% of this district has college educations. It's very wealthy. It's uh, sort of this suburban area that has made... Um, that Trump has made very uncomfortable. A lot of people have described it to me as genteel Republicans. And so, and they backed Rubio in the primary. And um, so Democrats see an opening here to try and convince those, uh, as they say, soft Republicans to to uh, continue to be uncomfortable with Trump and maybe send someone to balance out um, to balance out the, the power in, in the House. And so Democrats have put forward uh, John Ossoff, who uh, was a who is a congressional aide, uh, very young. Uh, I think he's just turned thirty, and uh, but he's gotten a ton of grassroots support and has raised almost a million dollars through small donations. So Democrats see that as a place where they could actually you know make some leeway. But the you know Republicans that I speak to in the state are incredibly uh, uh, 
suspicious of that possibility and say that it's very unlikely and point to Tom Price, who won with more than 60% in 2016. And then we're still waiting for Montana to take shape, really, because Ryan Zinke, who's been nominated for Interior there, hasn't actually been confirmed yet. And so he he's still sitting in the seat, and the special election hasn't actually been scheduled yet. But this is a continuation of really what we were just talking about with regard to CPAC. And in a way, it's these parties are changing, and there's a lot of energy flying around on, on both sides right now uh, that that is sooner or later going to get directed into into these special primaries going on around the country, right? But in the meantime, we're, we're seeing a lot of the same energy in a few other ways. We're seeing these town hall meetings slash protests where uh, people are piling in and really giving their representatives an ear- earful. We're seeing the debate over who's going to be the next chair of the Democratic National Committee. Charlie, walk, walk us through a little bit just like the, there. this is a moment of great upheaval in in both parties. Yeah, I think if, if you look at the special election landscape, uh, there's one in particular that, that tells you a lot. I think they're all, you know, not that interesting, or at least they're pretty standard issue special elections where you've got, you know, in L.A., a big field of candidates. You've got, you know, issues that are parochial issues in the in the other states, like in South Carolina. Ralph Norman, I know, has run before. Like, you got a lot of, uh, you know, familiar faces running. The one to watch, though, I think is Georgia 6 for a couple of reasons. The Republican Party was born in Wisconsin, but the modern Republican Party was born in uh, Cobb County and in uh, Orange County in California. And those, uh, the modern uh, Republican Party was, uh, you know, the, the, this version of uh, Sunbelt conservatism that we are all familiar with uh, comes out of those places. Cobb County produced Newt Gingrich. I mean, obviously came from a lot of different places, but that was where his house seat was in the beginning. It is, I think, of all the counties in the South, probably the first suburban Republican machine in the South. And so for Trump to have lost Cobb County, uh, he, he won that congressional district narrowly. And that's a district that's you know, as Elena pointed out, it's a very Republican. Price regularly runs up two-thirds of the vote there. But then but one of the counties in there, Cobb County, uh, Trump lost. Trump also lost Orange County, California for the first time in probably a century. And so what I find really interesting there and what I'm watching is uh, a couple things. Number one, how pissed off are Democrats? Because that is a good way to show it in that district. Are they going to have a huge turnout and make it close? I mean, can he, I don't think a Democrat can win that district, but can they, you know, can can the challenger maybe keep, uh, you know, make it through to the the, uh, the runoff and can they keep it close? That would tell you something about the intensity of the uh, Democratic resistance if they could uh, be competitive in that race. But the other thing, too, is I'm interested to see who emerges from that uh, from that primer, which candidate, because... On the Republican side. Yes, on the Republican side, because Trump is not loved uh, in that area. And, and this is a phenomenon that you saw across the country. Trump was Trump won the suburbs. Uh, I think he won 50 to 45, according to the exit polls. But he performed really poorly uh, in many of the older and uh, more politically pivotal suburbs uh, that have driven politics in a lot of big states. For example, he lost the Philadelphia suburbs. He ran uh, behind Mitt Romney in the Milwaukee suburbs. He lost Orange County. He lost Cobb County. Uh, he lost DuPage County in Illinois. So some of the biggest and most influential Republican counties in the country, suburban counties, he really struggled in. And so I'll be watching to see 
how he influences that special election and who emerges as the Republican nominee or even the winner? Well, I think all of the Republicans who are running in Georgia 6 are sort of are trying to walk this fine line here where they're trying to still gauge how much they want to embrace Trump and how much they want to keep him at arm's distance. And we, you know, look at someone like David Abrams, who's a relative unknown. He's a business owner. He's never run for office before, but he's a self-funder. And he's hired almost all of uh, Evan McMullen, who ran as an independent um, in the presidential race, has hired his team. So that's one person to watch to see how much distance he tries to put himself and uh, between Trump and but you know on the other end you've got Bruce Lavelle who's also running in that primary who was you know a, a Trump diversity coalition advisor so you've got kind of two ends of the spectrum there. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know that. I mean those are the, the those are the two to watch then if you're if you're looking at the two ends of the spectrum on Trump. The full spectrum, yeah, is available yeah, in, in this and, and potentially potentially a lot of other Republican primaries. I want to go back to something Charlie just said about the the, the energy uh, going on, just, just how angry Democrats are right now. And I think one of the ways we're seeing it, we've talked a little bit about it earlier in the podcast and in some previous episodes, but these town halls that are going on as Congress is on recess this week. And uh, Ken, you know, we've gotten a, a Republican talking point that is emerging, which was a Democratic talking point in 2009 at the beginning of the Tea Party, is that these are paid protesters. And we haven't really seen evidence of that yet. And But one of the reasons we're looking forward to these special elections is it'll give us an opportunity to see you know, just how real this energy is. But Ken, tell, tell us a little bit about these these protests, these town halls, and what's driving them. I mean, they, they may not be paid, but there is definitely an organized effort on the left to promote these and to uh, create this groundswell. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of groups that are really working hard to try to harness this energy. But let's not confuse that with like AstroTurf. I mean, the energy is there and the energy was there with the Tea Party as well. And Democrats who use that as a talking point in 2009 were sort of faced a rude awakening in November of 2010 when some of those same groups that were working to harness the Tea Party and organize protests and get people to town halls also, we're able to steer some of those people to the ballot box. And guess what they did? They voted Democrats out of the majority in the House of Representatives. So, uh, you know, I think that's kind of a canard, this idea that they're paid protests. First of all, that, like there's very few examples ever of like paid protests. You know, some Republicans like to point to the unions paying pe- uh, the unions rather requiring employers to pay union members to take time off to go to protest or to go knock on doors. Uh, You know, that's sort of at the margins of this. But if you look at some of the crowds that turned out, like the crowd that turned out, you know, for the women's march, you think that all those people are paid somebody that's like the half of George Soros's fortune right there to pay all those people. Um, So, you know, I think it's uh, it's sort of a, a, a bad argument. Frankly, it was a bad argument for Democrats then. It's a bad argument for Republicans now. But there are legitimate questions about whether this energy can be harnessed effectively. And that will fall to those groups that are, you know, being blamed right now or credited for turning all these people out. You know, if Code Pink can, in fact, turn all those people out for the Women's March, and they can also turn them out on Election Day, that's a potential game changer. seems like Republicans are picking up on the idea that that is uh, not a successful or winning message, the idea of accusing all these protesters of being paid. I mean, I'm, I'm like you and uh, Elaine. I don't know if, if you're with Ken and I on this, but I tend to think it, from, from everything I can tell and from talking to people, it's a mixture. It's, some of it's AstroTurf. A lot of it is organic, just real rage and anger out there. But what I've noticed in uh, recent days, it seems that a number of Republicans have stopped talking about it in terms of, oh, these are 
are all Soros stooges. And a couple of members have been out on stage saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether they're paid or not. And they acknowledge that there is real feeling out there and they've stopped pursuing that line of argument. uh, Again, like whether they're paid or not, I mean, first of all, I I think that's like just so such a if it exists at all, it's such a tiny sliver of the turnout on these things. But like, think about like your daily life. Like, you know, the the the, the initial Tea Party protests were in like August of of uh, we wrote the story. Alex Eisenstadt actually, yeah. at your direction, was the first mm-hmm. to sort of catch uh, catch this phenomenon happening. Um, that all these people were turning out for these town hall rally, or town hall uh, meetings with the, their, their members of Congress to give them a hard time in, in uh, like August of 2009. I mean, it's the middle of like summer vacation. These people have families. They got to take their kids to the camp or the beach or whatever. The fact that they came out, whether they were paid a few bucks or whether the mean, nasty Koch brothers like, you know, uh, paid a group to bust them to it, like, who, who gives a crap? You know what I mean? Like the fact that these people, all these people are taking time out of their lives to come to Washington or go to town hall, like that's pretty significant. And I think that's one of the reasons that we want to keep an eye on these special elections going forward. It's a, it's a really good opportunity for us to measure some of this enthusiasm against a, a baseline and actually see th- how successful or not Democrats are turning some of this energy into actual votes. You know, so these districts are tough, as Elena said, but uh, even you know, making a, a race closer than it might have been could be an interesting sign going forward as we gauge the political climate uh, going forward in the Trump administration. All right, that is it for us. Thank you, everyone, for an illuminating conversation today. Fun time as always, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Scott. Great to have you, Elena. And thank you to our listeners. If you're still listening, I hope that means you enjoyed this week's show, and we'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and rate us and even write a written review if you have the time on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, if you have a question, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, Nerdcast illustrator Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.